Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you, me and Joanne are flying back east tomorrow. And uh, it always stinks when you fly back east because you have to go so early so you don't lose your whole day. Our flight is at 7 a.m. out of LAX and we live in Burbank. That means we have to take an Uber at around... Because Joanne freaks. like We have to be there like two hours before. We probably have to leave like at 4.30, which means I have to get up at 3.30. And it's going to be crazy. But the reason you have to do that is because if you take a later flight, if you leave at 1, by the time you get there, it's 7. But then it's 10 o'clock their time. And no one's glad to see you because they've been waiting for you all day. And so that's what's going to happen to me tomorrow. We're going to get there. Luckily, we'll get there at 5 or 6. And her mom will make us dinner and we'll be happy. So, yeah. So it's going to be a good flight, I hope. We have a layover in Dallas, and which is crazy airport to be a layover in. But it'll be good. So anyway, uh, that's my holiday plans. I'm leaving tomorrow. But uh, we have a great guest today. I got in touch with her on Facebook. She's a uh, st- star of stage and screen. We have Sharon Lawrence. How are you doing, Sharon? Good. Thanks, Steve. Happy holiday. Uh, happy holidays. Now, now, do you like flying? Some people hate flying because you, for your job, you have to fly a lot. What What do you feel? Do you like the early flight, the late flight? Mm, really depends on the situation. Um, if I'm going to New York, I like to get in in time to be able to see a show that night because... For me, New York uh, is not only my old hometown or adopted hometown, but it is where I feel that sort of sacred um, access to to the type of um, entertainment and, and artistry that you can only experience live. Um, there's great theater here in Los Angeles, and I'm very proud to be a member of the community here. Um, but part of, of I think, my my reward for, for working years and years in the business is to watch other artists do their thing. So I, I'm constantly basing my plans on whether if I can get there for a show on Tuesday night, um, I'll, I'll schedule my flight around it. I, it's something that um, is worth an early morning for me. See, that's great. I mean, that's great that you really support the, uh, you still support some people, you know, they drift away from it, but you support it, which mm. is great. Now, as a kid, I know you, did you, did you always want to act? Cause I know you sing, you do everything as a little kid. Did you start acting or when did this bug take you over? I think I was born with it. Um, I was decorating our, our Christmas tree with my mother-in-law um, the other night and we had the Julie Andrews Christmas Carol album on and, um, I grew up listening to that, uh, and for me, it, it really does make the holidays complete if if she is is the one who, um, and those particular arrangements are the ones that I'm listening to. It it, it makes the nostalgic aspect of it um, even richer for me. And so I sing along with it, just without even knowing it. It's it's subconscious because it is so much ingrained in me. And my mother-in-law said, "Must be nice to have such a." Um, a lovely singing voice. And I said, you know what? That's my mother's voice. I got it from her. I got it from her not only with the the, the hardware that came with the genetic um, structure, but also the software because she's the one that sang to me as, and my brother as a kid. She has a beautiful, beautiful voice. Although she um, is a shy person and and never really felt comfortable singing solo I did have the benefit of someone who understood great music understood great performance um, taught me to sing along with her and gave me a confidence in in that particular form of expression so by the time I was in school the easiest path for me and the one that I felt 
not only most comfortable in, but um, most purposeful in was singing choirs and the same thing with Girl Scouts and the same thing with church. Um, my parents met at, in their um, choir in college. So they came from both sides of my family, not only the the sort of aptitude, but the value of that kind of work. And um, because there was music in the house all the time, I also was moving to music. And while my mom wasn't a dancer, she saw that the value in it for me, we had another family member who had taken class with um, a very classically oriented instructor in Charlotte, North Carolina. It wasn't the dance recitals. It wasn't all about costumes and vying for the, you know, the spot to be in the front row right. of the big rented venue where, you know, a thousand little girls and about 10 little boys at the time, back in the early 60s, were um, all working toward that one day in the afternoon where all the work comes together because you are um, justifying all right. of the energy, effort, and money that's spent. It was very different. We, it was a small studio. Um, we, all we did is a demonstration at the end of the class year, and we were in the same little black leotard and pink tights, but the work was really about learning technique. And I, again, felt comfortable there. I grew in confidence um, because I was with people that were really about the authentic training for ballet. By the time I was in high school, I was doing musicals um, for the school, and my dad was a television reporter in North Carolina. So he was somebody that was not only in the public eye, but because I grew up seeing, it was normative for me to understand that performance has a public aspect to it. A lot of people have great satisfaction, like my mom, in singing for themselves, in singing maybe with the group, doing something that feels more um, intimate and um, and personal. But for me, the public aspect of it was natural. And my degrees in journalism um, from UNC Chapel Hill, I'm very proud of that degree because not only is it a great J school, and I say that as a proud alum and a member of the General Alumni Association Board of Directors. I got to tell you real quick that, that all those schools like North Carolina and Duke are such great schools. And yeah. a lot of people don't always think that because I think before back in the day, they were more of a popular sports school, but they're both, they're all academically so sound. I grew up where a lot of kids went from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, went down there or went to Ivy League schools yeah. or went to Northwestern. And yeah, having a degree in journalism there, that's like, that's very impressive. Yes, it is. And because we're the oldest state um, supported school in the nation, there's um, a great history and pride in um, all of the commitment that the school has made. And I have to say that public schools during my educational years were also committed to public performance. So I got a great advantage of, like, you know, an athlete does now in a public school system. If, if they've committed to a program and to guidance and leadership and development and putting resources in it, then it it is not a pipe dream. It doesn't feel um, as if it is um, something that's just a... Um, you know, um, um, an ancillary aspect. And now we've actually approved money and in school systems that say that the arts really are part of the core development of, of any um, person's education. And uh, I got a great deal of understanding of how um, organizational dynamics work within those kinds of, of group programs that um, 
gave me an appreciation of the arts and also working in a group, understanding leadership, understanding what it means to um, dedicate yourself to a particular task, how you commit to the results for an entire group, not just for yourself. And um, although my degree was in journalism, I was able to perform at UNC Chapel Hill on stage. They've got a great um, undergrad and graduate program. I spent my summers doing summer stock. So it was natural for me to give it a shot. I, I planned to um, to give New York and theater five years of my commitment right out of um, college when I graduated. And uh, the plan after that was, you know, if if I feel I've had my fill, because I didn't really understand how I wanted to to um, measure and describe success. I think that's something that continues to evolve for me. What does success mean? Goals in the arts are very difficult to to make tangible, measurable, quantifiable um, benchmarks on. I think um, my husband's a physician, and getting taking your med cats, scoring well interviewing for programs, being accepted to medical school first, um, deciding what track you're going to be in, doing residencies, fellowships, all those things. You you have um, a system in place that, that gives levels of achievement, understanding, passing boards, licensing, all those things. We don't have that in our industry. We do have union membership. Um, and But even that is a fluid... Um, uh, aspect of our business because there are various entries into to that core of professional um, standards and I I look to um, my my younger colleagues and I see how challenging it is now to understand what success is because there are so many more levels to to entry and sometimes it's about creating something that you have proprietary ownership uh, no, that's redundant. But but that you can can be the the generator of. Um, when I was starting, it really was about be, being employed by somebody that has the that opens the door for you, as opposed to being able to open it yourself. But that's changed so much now. Oh, yeah, especially with like YouTube and stuff like right. that. Anything. I mean, that's you, what I'm referring you, to. you can make a a project on an iPhone. I mean, yeah. and you think, I mean, I know when I was younger, you know, the guys in Philly who we did comedy, one guy was a film student. He would sit there and go, oh yeah, he have to raise all this money. And it was like, he's making like a 12 minute film. And we're like, what? It costs that much? Now, if someone gave you $15,000 with an iPhone, you can make an amazing, I mean, something very good. Right, right, right. And and I'm excited about that. I um got really interested in, uh, my dad was a very early adopter of the intraweb, and that's not what he called it. He knew exactly what it was called. But I went back to his station, um, WRAL Television in Raleigh, Channel Five, a big, big CBS affiliate, like a lot of the ones in the Southeast are. That's their, that's their, their bread and butter is that those CBS um, stations. And he was news director, and early on saw the power of computers because they were using it, especially in our area, UNC, that, that UNC, Duke, NC State, they call it the research triangle because of the great um, educational institutions there, because of the commitment to medicine and science of all kinds. Burroughs Welcome, a lot of big companies centered themselves there and were developing th- the idea of using this massive ability to communicate, especially through the universities. That's something most everybody knows. But what people didn't know is how 
journalism was going to to absorb it and use it. And he was was somebody who was always interested in the next steps. But I was too young and naive to really understand and not just cool enough to get what he was talking about. And during that time, I had also moved to New York, so I wasn't home as much. But when I went back in October to promote um, a new airing of NYPD Blue on, on a new network called Heroes and Icons, all the people at the station, quite a few of them who he had hired that were still there, were telling me about this, my dad's first um, introduction for them into computers and why he was so interested in pushing it. So through him, I got interested in what it meant to tell stories in other ways. And I developed a story with the AFI Digital Content Lab, which sadly no longer exists, AFI, the American Film Institute, um, back about 15 years ago, was really interested in how we could use um, the the online aspect of telling stories as ancillary components to our traditional media. And I developed a story about female journalists, a college journalist who um, is, you know, using the media, using all forms of media to tell stories. Well, cell phones hadn't really developed. Bandwidth wasn't what it is now. We were ahead of, we were ahead of our time, actually. And I think about what it means to produce well on those different platforms. And sadly, yeah, part of the the shift to no berries berries of entry is there's also no real standard of excellence. Right. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I always say that too. Yeah. It's always like if some kid has, a, and God bless him, but if some kid is just not talented and he he keeps shooting stuff and he keeps posting and he keeps posting it, it's sort of like wait a second it, it sort of takes away when someone does something like when someone does let's say a, a rant or a blog and it's very good but then someone who's got like a bunch of friends yeah and it's very bad yeah. and, but that's the thing but that's the one thing that we have to deal with when things become easy i mean basically there's always been people auditioning for stuff it's just now it's a lot more open like i did comedy there was like 25 of us doing open mics in philadelphia back in 1988 mm. now in la there's, I mean, I don't do it anymore, but I see there's like 40,000 comics because they can, if they don't get on stage, they can make something on YouTube and it's just like happens. Well, I think that there's a, also a big shift between our generation and um, let's say the kids that were born in the early 90s. I'm going to just pick that as, as a, a general marker. Those kids grew up watching themselves on the same television that they watched the network news, all the game shows, the soap operas that their families might have watched, and certainly the nighttime television because their parents videoed everything they did and ran those cables from the camera right into the front of the same television set that they were seeing everything else. So we've got generations of kids that grew up seeing themselves in two dimensions on the same delivery system that this that the, the excellent work was was also um absorbed and broadcast through we watched this this shift but prior to that it was this rarefied air if you were on camera it's it wasn't ubiquitous the way that it is now and that's you know there's the, the 
we'll never go back to another time that doesn't have that influence where everybody's used to seeing themselves and everybody's used to to recognizing their um the democracy of the screen and it's interesting but it also makes it harder to pick out the good stuff now we can also you know echo what everybody's saying there's a lot of great stuff out there now right. and it's thrilling to be part of it and i'm on a new series now that will be on the air um on nbc um it's in early 2018 pardon me 2016 and what we what our responsibility now is, even in a show that isn't on the air, is to collect content that we use to to make our audience and viewers feel closer to what it is that we're doing. It's part of part of now the the process. And um, I think that while I'm glad to to know that the standards are still so high for what we do, I I'm sorry that the mystery of how we do it has been eked away a bit. Well, it also cracks me up with the te- way technology is and with the texting and everything. Now, when you watch a TV show, they actually have the text bubble sometimes, the people mm-hmm. texting. And for me, that's like, that sort of takes away from the storytelling. I don't know. I just, for me, right. it's like, I, I want to see them sit there and talk on the phone. I don't, I know everyone texts, but I don't want to see on TV someone texting because I can see that every day wherever I go. Right. Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. It, it, But there's such different storytelling now. We've got great storytelling um, in period pieces where it is a simpler time. And, and it's an interesting exercise to wonder what, what, what would it have been like when communication is not instant? What would you, how would you live differently? Um, all these shows that explore it, not only in the past, like Downton Abbey or Home Fires or um, certainly Game of Thrones, but what it's what it would be like in the future with the, these supposed um, uh, genre shows like uh, Leftovers or Walking Dead. Those those scenarios are interesting for us because that that is how we we imagine the fantasies of of our world is not staying, you know, disconnecting. Right. How ironic, you know, that, that that's what we're addicted to, but that is what we dream of not having to deal with. Now, I want to ask you, earlier you said when you when you got out of college, you were giving yourself five years in New York. Yeah. Now, how did that go? Were you, go, were you wide-eyed and ready to go? Sure. Were you a little intimidated because it is New York and Both. it's early? So what was your first break in New York? Do you remember? Was it when you, you on Broadway? Well, I think there's a, a there there are various types of breaks. I think my first break, really, if I think about it um, comprehensively, was meeting people in Summerstock down in North Carolina who were brought in from New York, the choreographer, the musical director, some of the stars, that gave me um, feedback enough for me to understand, and they had no reason to you know shine me on, but to let me know that I had the a chance to compete in that marketplace. So having that reflected back was probably one of the best advantages I could have imagined because a lot of people go without understanding where they would fit in the in the food chain. I knew that I um, could play opposite people that were professionals that had their 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 union their actors equity membership because they were bringing in equity equity actors and then casting other roles around them so that was important for me to have that confidence or that um, understanding that 
it wasn't a pipe dream. Um, then I uh, got my first waitress job pretty soon thereafter through a friend that I had met in Summerstock. That's really important too, to know that you have a way to 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 make your living while you are pursuing your dream. Um, I'm glad that I had summer stock or, or summer seasons as a waitress. I was a singing waitress, so I was do, pr- both performing and learning a skill that was going to translate into any city that I would move to. Um, but then about two weeks after I had had located myself, moved the few things that I was going to bring with me up to a sublet that I was sharing with somebody that I'd met in Summerstock, I got an audition for a cruise ship. And um, this was 1983. So um, the cruise ship industry was not nearly the size right. that it is now, but they were still um, offering live entertainment. Um, that was not a um, um, as much of a, of a business as it is now, but it was one that was perfectly tailored for my skills because I was the kind of singer and dancer that... Um, could do a lot of different styles, and that's what those cruise ships required at the time. We weren't doing um, a, a musical, a full-fledged musical. We were doing reviews of types of music. So um, I was immediately hired by a New York company, and that gave me, you know, a lot. That that was gave me a lot of confidence, and I could save money while I was out in the Caribbean, floating around. And, um, as, but the sad and unfortunate aspect was anybody that's been on a cruise ship will understand this. Um, by the time I got off the ship, I was cargo. I mean, I was just, right. <laughs> you know, you can't resist all the all the buffets and the food. And um, so I learned a good lesson there that, um, you know, my my sense of, of self-control. I was 21. You know, I still needed to develop that. And then I got back to New York and, and, and put myself into all kinds of classes, dance classes, um, acting classes. I knew that I was a good student and that's something else that's important when you are um, going to a new market. You have to learn the the level at which you're going to be working. You have to challenge yourself to develop um those skills even further and to also develop your network um, because the people that you're in class with will be the people that you that will be your peers and colleagues throughout your development. Um, it's also a great important lesson to learn that your your free time, the time that's free to you um, must be filled with a way to develop your sense of your artistry. My favorite acting teacher, Larry Moss, um, was really instrumental in giving us the the admonition that we are curating our own training. It's up to us. Nobody's going to devise your course system for you unless you're in a you know a program, a graduate program or a training program. So that means making sure that you are seeing what's what's good, what's out there, watching it a- any way that you can, making sure that you're learning about all forms of art. Those kinds of things are important. It, it's too easy just to loaf around um, when you don't have a structured program. So those are the, that's how I use my time in New York until I was cast, um, my, you know, a next step, it seems innocuous, but very important. I was cast in a children's theater touring production that gave me my equity card. That's how I got my, my union membership. That's huge because then you, after that, you are allowed to audition for um, 
for the the top level of professional shows. Um, those that equity membership got me to my first big equity job, which was Zorba with Anthony Quinn, touring around the country. And that was important too because I learned not only what it was like to work with a star, and I did work closely with him because I was a featured cast member with specifically with him. Um, but what it meant to develop the discipline to do eight shows a week um, at, at such a high standard. Um, I did a couple of those great big revival tours, um, Cabaret with Joel Grey, um, Fiddler on the Roof with Topol. And then um, I was ready to, to play characters that evolved beyond that same story. Um, beyond two acts, I wanted right. to, to pursue that further. But it was also technology that changed the way I looked at what I was interested in terms of storytelling. When I left for college, the things that were on television were Dynasty and those sort of fantasy glamour shows. And I never saw myself in that capacity. It just wasn't, it didn't, didn't resonate with me um, in terms of a self-image. And um, by the time I got back um, and was living in New York doing Fiddler, VCRs were accessible. And I could then watch television again because if you think about it, I'm working every night. Oh, I know. When I did comedy, it was like you couldn't watch. You, yeah. What time do you go on stage? From 8, there's another show at 11. And yeah, people would say, you never watched a show? I said, I once VCRs. I said, well, I could set Seinfeld. That's, but I couldn't figure out half the time. And when you get home... The last thing you want to do is put the tape in. So we, that's the thing that like now it's different. But when you performed, it was really, you were, that was your life because you couldn't watch TV at, unless you're watching a soap opera in a day, you know, or a game show, you couldn't watch things at night. Right. And you also didn't get to watch your fellow um, stage actors in their shows. That was, that's the blessing and the curse of, of being a working performer in live theater. So I could watch shows and they were, and at that point it's Stephen Bochco. Um, was producing really great stuff that was about people, women in particular, that I could identify with, professional women who were real, who um, represented people that I felt were relatable. And that's um, that's what interested me in, in changing course. I, I, as you know, an overused word, I, I did a big time pivot. I um, left New York. I moved to LA without representation, without really a support system. I had a few friends out here, but I, by that time, I knew that I was, um, was a pro who had um, a different ambition, and I couldn't ignore that. So I didn't. I came out. I didn't know how it was going to work. I had done one little student film, so I didn't have much on-camera experience at all, but I knew that I had developed as an actor, and that was important. I wasn't just, I wasn't coming to LA to sing and dance. Now you can do that. You can come to Los Angeles to sing and dance. I think if, you know, the the shows like Dancing with the Stars and The Voice, um, but in, back it, when I was doing it, if you, if you were a singer or dancer, New York really needed to, was where you needed to be, because most of those big shows were originating there. So when you come out here, I mean, it must be, it's because you're coming from such a tight community because everyone says the theater community, everyone has each other's back. I mean, it's like anything you have because you've all gone through it. You've all done the summer stock. You've done this. You've done that. Now you're coming out and you don't know many people. Where do you start out? Like, you know, I mean, do they sit there with representation? I know a lot of times in LA, they're like, oh, stay. I mean, they're clueless to what, how 
talented stage actors are. What does a stage actor do when they come out back then and you're it's basically you're starting over? Yeah, it was 1991, and um, I didn't have what they call tape on myself. I think the student film I probably got later. I don't even know if I ever saw that one, frankly. But I did a I did a student film in here in LA that I auditioned with. I went down to USC. Uh, maybe it was even through Backstage, the um, the weekly periodical for for entertainment professionals. Backstage was something that I was used to reading in New York, so it felt like home. Although the format was different, um, it did, you know, there was some familiarity, and that was helpful. But my big, my, my big um, step in was to attend the casting director workshops. Now, those have evolved in the 20 years since I've been here, um, almost 25 now, and I. Um, I, I can't speak for all of them now, but at the time there were only a few and they served me very well because I was able to um, present myself without barrier of entry. I didn't need entree of an, uh, uh, of an agent submitting me for casting directors to actually see my work one-on-one. And by that, I mean these workshops allow you to do a cold reading. And if you are smart about what type you are, and I was, I understood what I would be playing and I understood what I wouldn't be playing, then I could uh, be a viable new fresh face. And casting directors are always interested in fresh faces, in, in new faces. It was a very smart tact for me to take at the time because I also was not 20. And I think that's harder in some ways to be 20 because there are so many people that are. And maybe you don't quite know what your 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 power zone is and what you are most likely to be marketed as or marketable as. But I did know. And um, that's an important thing for any actor, any performer to understand is what is the essence that you are first going to be, you know, your big stroke, that big um, kind of archetypal version of yourself. There's when you're on stage, it's part of your job. And part of the craft that everyone is employing, the lighting designer, set designer, costumer, um, what, if it's music or musical, the form of music, that world allows everything to transform in one moment in time. That's what's so interesting, challenging, and sacred about stage is that you're all coming together to build, to rehearse, to create something that transforms every everybody's departments, everybody's contribution into this um, this organism that is presented to an audience that's absorbing it all at once. Camera's very different. You must know that you are seen almost in the, in the most stripped down version of yourself because when you're auditioning, there aren't lights. Typically, it's, it's not set up to, to create an illusion. You're not going in 
in a, maybe you go in to suggest a character, but you aren't going in with full costumed concept that creates a, something that, that shifts who you are. You're pretty much going as yourself with everything that you bring to a role. That's a big, big difference. So a casting director needs to be able to see who and what you are, and they need to be able to assess it in a nanosecond because then they know where they can um, successfully employ you as an actor that they're presenting to who they are selling their goods to, which is producers. Actors forget often that really that's who they need to to find their way to. And, and an agency's job is to help create that conduit. Um, they're hired by the actor to create that, that pathway. It's not about selling yourself to the agent. It really, it, because the agent becomes your tool to do that with. But y- a young actor needs to know really what they're marketing. And, and, and what's interesting is when you're young, you might not quite know. Right. So it's important to have the, the, um, those workshops and choose them well because you'll get the feedback that will help start to educate you about that. So you, when you start booking stuff, what was the transition like going from, as I say, you were doing eight shows. I mean, that, then you said that's such grueling work. I mean, people don't even know what, I mean, I just could imagine because you constantly have to bring it. It's like, you can't sit there and go one day. If you feel sick, a little bit sick, you still gotta go and bring it because people are paying and expecting something. What's it like for a stage actor for you? with traveling and all that, then all of a sudden you start getting a small part of a TV show. You must be sitting there going, man, this is, this is cake work. I mean, it must be a weird thing because it's a lot of takes. You don't have to remember what you have to remember in a play, which is amazing. I don't know how people remember that. It's like, remember five lines. What was your first like guest star? I know you were in cheers and shows like that was, what was that like getting on a set? Now it's something different. It's like, okay, I have to work a mark with a camera. And I mean, what is that like as a transition for you? Well, it was very exciting to be learning something, uh, such a new skill set, and also understanding that timing is really important. And by that, I don't, for Cheers, comic timing was important. And my audition was, um, you know, to, I, I played a sex addict in a, in a sex addict group that um, um, Ted Danson's character hits on. It was the second to the last episode of the entire run of the show and um it was not about me using my a a comic twist it was playing it very very straight ironically you know that's my first sitcom job is playing somebody really um in in true emotional distress about her addiction um and it's funny because just this year on Blunt Talk, um, the the new series on oh, Stars, it. I play a sex addict with yes, Patrick I, Stewart. I, yeah, yeah. yeah I, right. I, I really, I, me and my girlfriend watched that show. We really enjoyed it. It was one of those things. It it's just he's so great at it. Yeah, like, he's, he's fantastic. perfect. Like you sit there and it's like, and it's so everyone's so dysfunctional. I mean, it's just, yeah. and you, but you like them, and that's what I think a lot of times with TV shows right. is we want to see flawed people that. Yeah. They're not bad people. They're just flawed. Right. And Jonathan Ames, the the creator and the showrunner, has such a um, a big heart. He he is he's a great balance of intellect and empathy. And his 
generosity of spirit comes through with the way he loves all those those characters and their challenges. And Patrick Stewart, as um, a leader, is somebody very, very balanced, really happy. There's not a neurotic part, you know, from what I could see. He just isn't a troubled kind of guy, which makes him a, a great leader at the head of these um, ecosystems of shows. And the same was true for Ted Danson. I watched that environment and understanding that uh, there is a there's so much unstructured time on a film set. While one department is setting up lights, another department has a lot of downtime. So unlike theater, you know, you get there, you when you get to the theater, you're not wasting a lot of time. You get to the theater in time to prepare, whatever that means for, for you you personally. You are required to be there a half an hour before the curtain goes up, but no earlier than that. So you're not sitting around playing your video games or, um, you know, just um, wasting, not wasting, but, but killing time. So it's an efficient environment and everyone is expected to um, to to be to, you know to be at the stage um, wings and on there making their entrances and it's precise on a film set it's much more fluid and I I had to learn what that meant I had to learn how to pace myself what it my job on a, on a stage show would be let's see the last big Broadway my big big Broadway um, last big Broadway run, which required so much of me, was I played Velma in Chicago. Right. Now, I started out as a dancer on stage, what, 24? I was 40 when I played Velma. So my body required a different type of um, maintenance just by virtue of age. So I would have to get to the theater. And I got to the theater an hour and a half earlier. I'd eat a little bit of protein. I'd give myself a great ballet bar warm up. Um, I would, um, you know, you, you do your own makeup when you're on stage. You, um, you are responsible for a lot of your own maintenance on a film set. You're called early enough for them to make sure that they get, they have somebody else do your hair and makeup, right? Then you are oftentimes waiting for your your first scene, and if things aren't going smoothly, you could be waiting for three or four hours before you actually do any work. So how do you keep yourself primed and ready? That's a challenge. You are oftentimes um, asked to um, do your most dramatic work um, on very short notice and, and out of sequence. These are all things that most people know, but those that's what I had to learn on a film set is how, how do I be private in public in these really important moments when you have to deliver without the benefit of a lot of rehearsal. And it's, it's exciting, but it takes a lot of um, understanding and adjusting it. Now, I'm on the board of the Screen Actors and AFTRA Foundation, and we have a wonderful series that, that anybody can access online to watch what it means to 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 be an actor, how these actors all think about their their processes, um, 
what it means to develop a character very different from yourself when you're playing a, a, a period piece, when you're looking at um, a um, um, a real transformation in a costume. I played a, I played an 80 year old woman in a a pilot for Amazon that um, Chris Carter directed, and just that three hour makeup process to get into that makeup and then an hour out of it um, added so much time to my day that I had to think about how do I pace myself over this now 12, 16 hour day Um, and, and what it means to have good relationships with everybody that you work so closely with because you spend so many hours with them. Um, The makeup trailer is, is, is a very, interesting dynamic because people are there when they're tired, when they're cold, when um, a loved one, something in their personal life has gone terribly wrong. And yet we all are so dependent on each other. Um, theater sets in a way, or the, the theater backstage life, you, you can isolate yourself a little more, ironically. So now earlier you also said you wanted to get to work with Stephen Bochco. Yeah. Now you came on. Now, how did that come up? And you you had such a, it was such an iconic show, and it was so different. And you had such a big part of it. It's something where it's just amazing that you were sitting there, and the reason why you came out, one of the main reasons, was to work with someone. And that must just be one of the biggest senses of accomplishment that you sit there and actually said, "I'm moving out." And a few years later, was it a long process to get cast in that? Or I mean, because it was. A, a big role. No, it, th- no. I've told this story before, so there. You know, maybe I'll be able to uh, elucidate something new. But um, I don't consider it an accomplishment. I consider it just um, a, a wonderful synchronicity of 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 timing, of understanding, of being. You know, a fresh face, but a grown up face. Because Bajko told stories about adults. That's really what what if you think about it. His stories were all about grown-ups and the complexities of being a grown-up in, in whatever profession the show might have surrounded. Um, I'll refer back to the casting director workshops because I knew that Junie Lowry-Johnson and her staff um, cast his shows when um, Scott Gankinger, who worked in Junie's office, was the casting director that had come to that particular evening. I knew that he was servicing an office that I wanted to get to, to know me and my work. Um, I went in knowing that I'm, my archetype was professionals. That that's how I chose to present myself as, you know, somebody in a law firm or somebody in a, you know, a business capacity. They called me in to audition for a show that he was doing at the time called civil wars, all about divorce, divorce lawyer, a firm that handled divorce. Um, I was cast and uh, able to perform the that role with uh, enough professional understanding. And I learned um, quickly what it meant to, because I took a good on-camera course that taught me the difference between um, the energy that is expressed out of the face for stage, which requires Really, especially uh, um, musicals, you have to use your mouth very differently because that's your megaphone. That's that is what creates the the um, energy behind the the singing voice and the speaking voice. Cameras the opposite. It's through the eyes. So you tone down the the lower half of your face and let everything come through the eyes and thought. I had understood that adjustment with um 
expression and technique. And um, I got cast in a role. I enjoyed the work. It was something that I that I was successful at. So when NYPD Blue was um, casting for their pilot, they decided they needed an uh, another woman in the mix of the world because it was heavily weighted with men. And just to be more balanced, they um, decided to change a, a day player role, meaning a character that only showed up um, in the script one for a couple of scenes and was only going to be working for one day. It was uh, written as, as a man. They decided they wanted to see a woman. They called a couple of people in. Um, I auditioned for it. I was cast. I shot it. And um, that scene became something that they were so interested with, the Sipowitz storyline, seeing this man disintegrate um, in a public way on, on the, the stand of a court case that he's called into because they found that character and Dennis's portrayal so interesting. They decided to change that whole sequence into what's called the teaser of the show, the very first scene that you see before the first commercial break. And they wanted it to then go from an interior to an exterior. So they brought me back to shoot some of that scene that we had done on the, the Fox stages as an exterior down at 100 Center Street in Manhattan. And that meant that we spent more time together. They got to know me more. They saw Dennis and I um, becoming better friends, just hanging out at the craft service table. And something sparked in Greg Hoblet, the creative um, the directing producer, and in David Milch, of course, the the the, the iconic and uh, never-to-be-matched writer of that show, and they thought this would be a compelling romance, an unlikely couple, and that's how that happened. So that wasn't anything but fate and circumstances and creative minds working and developing because nobody saw that coming. She was a, a beloved character for you know the, the, the six seasons that David Milch wrote the show, and that for me is a, a gift from you know out of the blue no pun intended right. and 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 i know that although i was playing somebody that was perceived as older than i was and and i then had to find ways to fill in the gaps of my my other interests like comedy and i guess start on a on a show for nbc called caroline in the city and got to do really physical comedy which because of my dance background and my musical theater comedic work, then uh, opened the doors for me to have my own sitcom that starred Jonathan Banks and Lee Remini and Mark Feuerstein, you know, uh, that Jimmy Burroughs um, directed. So those things, I, I couldn't, you can't plan that. You can't, it's hard to plan a career this way. All you can do is understand your, your strong suit, lead with that, develop your weaker, um, um, uh, skills, keep your eyes and ears open, be um, a student all the time, be a good team player, and recognize that the world of entertainment keeps changing. And, and you, as your own tool, do. That's why what we do with the Screen Actors Guild, our, our SAG After Foundation conversations about the business, is not only about those people that are achieving the top level, but also what it means to transition. And I encourage all actors to take a look at what we have uh, available to us. The great news is that now 
women are telling stories more. I've been on the board of women in film, our foundation for years. I'm on the advisory board now. Um, we are we. There's a lot that can be frustrating, but there's so much that's changing and shifting about our world. Um, I play a really powerful woman in this new series, Game of Silence, that David Hudgens wrote, who was on Friday Night Lights and um, Parenthood. And um, it's great to 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 know that um, the directors that I work with, like Ava DuVernay in Middle of Nowhere and um, um, Anthony Hopkins, I'm, on, I'm in a film called Solace that he starred in, watching all these these pros that I now feel um, a, a a peer of, a colleague, that's a great place to get to because I now know that I can come in and contribute in a way that I couldn't have done at age 25 just because I know more and I've lived life longer. And that's the, uh, that's the good news about maturing in this business. And what's great also is, you know, when we go back to NYPD Blue, it was such a strong female character. And now, as you said, that one network is going to show it. And people can find that stuff now. Before, you couldn't find characters. And, you know, you were sort of trendsetting in a strong female in a drama. There was, you know, I mean, we all grew up watching Kyle Burnett. There was strong female comedians. But, I mean, that must be great, too, for for you to be able to now show, you know, it's sharing your wisdom somewhat. where People can see that and be like, okay, you know, it's, it's accessible. Because, I mean, and you've done comedy. You've done screen, stage. And it's you're someone who's been able to make it all work. And a lot of times people who are doing stage, I think, are a little hesitant. You know, where someone who's an actor on TV might be like, I don't know if I could do stage when it's just acting. I think you actually are a good role model on that fact that you've done it all. And you must be very you must be very proud of your career. I'm grateful for it because I um I know that my background is what gave me this the the foundation. I know that my teachers um, are the ones who have encouraged the the versatility that I value. I've, I value it in, in, in all artists, particularly actors, and that's why I commit to doing a play every year, no matter where it is. It's not about... Um, the you know the chess move is this a, the, the the right um, political or commercial move it's really more about can I can I stretch and grow and keep that muscle alive and and um, and exercise so that I can be valuable to whatever story I'm lucky enough to help tell um, I am a, a really pragmatic person so I don't look at um, my um, career as um, just about me. I'm looking at it at, in, in the the entire ecosystem and, and um, micro, sometimes it's a micro, sometimes it's a macro overview. I know that while there are challenges for women in the business and leadership roles, there are also, uh, I think it's a golden age of female characters. So I look at that as as a as a really positive move. People like Gina Davis and her um, gender studies in the media. Um, that institute has really brought more focus to the fact that strong characters. Um, let's let's say more than strong. It's not just about being a strong character. It's about being a complex character as a woman. It's about knowing that we now can embrace the range of potentials. 
Um, it's important that we look at the diversity, and I'm encouraged by what I see that all races, all nationalities, all um, sexual orientations be represented, because what we see it really is how how our culture um, begins to understand or um, whether whether it's whether we heal through stories or whether we create divisions through stories. It's all out there. Um, and and the complexity is important. So my life um, and and in in this business has has been something that I'm very grateful for. It's rich because it's it's based on evolution of of me and of the the business that I'm working in. So the sitcom, uh, the, the, I mean, the new series comes yes. out in. Well, we we don't have an air date yet. It's considered mid-season. People are in the business know what that means. It's it meaning that somewhere between January and 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 March, they'll be making decisions about what these these shows that we that that are waiting um, to be seen when they'll be be put on the air. It's a very dark show. It's based on the film Sleepers, which um, I, the the, well, the Barry Levinson movie. No. Uh, yeah, with um, Brad Kevin Bacon. Pitt and oh my Kevin God! Bacon. I was just talking like, about that was such a disturbing movie, and I love Barry Levinson. It was when you watch it, you it, yes. it just you sit there and it, it's it tugs at you. Yes, yeah, it's it's um uh, a challenging world understanding the the abuse in juvenile um, detention facilities, the whole ecosystem behind the industrial prison complex. Um, friendship bonds secrets um those types of uh, themes are what we're exploring it's um it's set in texas um some really wonderful actors um that uh you know your your audience will know you know david lyons and lorenz tate and I'm Bree Blair, and now uh, I'm excited for it. Yeah, oh, great, I'm, I'm thank still, you. Just because I mean, just that movie. I was, as I said, it's just a, okay. I know you have to be out at eleven thirty. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to end a little bit short. Okay. Just so because I want sure. you to be able. Uh, so I want to thank you so much for coming on. Now, thank now you. your website is Sharon-Lawrence.com. Yeah, and it's not up and running right now. Okay. I've had some challenges with that, and I need to look at it further. But but I'm on Twitter. I'm Sharon Lawrence at Twitter. Do and, you tweet a lot? Yeah, I enough yeah okay yeah the the, the pertinent information's out there on twitter yeah well, i want to thank you for coming on oh, we gotta get a picture soon. and people so yeah please and definitely watch this series because if you haven't just rent the movie sleepers and then you go watch the series because this movie it's called if, game of silence if, yeah you yes. you have to watch it because just watch the movie and if you don't want to see the series you're dope anyway <laughs> email me cooper coopertalk.net follow me on twitter that's at Cooper Talk. Uh, happy holidays. I'll be out of studio next week, but I'm pre-recording, so next week we'll all be new shows. And you guys have a great day, and check out Sharon Lawrence on Twitter, and I will talk to you guys soon.